Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We're walking you through the flames. This week, the debate is on the college admission scandal. And since it's Women's History Month, our newsmaker of the week is the first woman to ever run Philadelphia's prison department. And finally, our changemaker is gearing up to celebrate the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and the focus is the college admission scandal involving celebrities and bigwig CEOs, all under indictment for trying to buy their kids' way into elite colleges. The admissions process at most, especially the selective colleges, it's very private. It's all done behind closed doors. Yep. That's Sarah Harbison, who once worked in admissions at Penn. She appeared on CBS this morning saying the process is fair until it's not. So how do you level the playing field and can the public ever really trust the admissions process? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Farah Jimenez. She is president and CEO of Philadelphia Education Fund. We also have Rodney Muhammad, president of the Philadelphia NAACP. We also have Kimberly Lewis, director of outreach and engagement at Philadelphia Futures. And finally, we have Esther Flavian. She's a junior at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. Hello, everybody. I want to start with Farah. You wrote an op-ed reacting to the college admission scandal saying it's not shocking. Why do you say that? Well, it's not shocking. Uh, the Philadelphia Education Fund uh, provides college access programming to 6,000 low-income students every year. And one of the things that we recognize is that the reason we do this work is because families, not just wealthy families, the ones that got caught up on the scandal to guarantee their students' admission into the college of their preference, but middle-income families are constantly investing in strategies that help elevate their students' chances of getting into a quality school, things like paying for SAT prep, paying for quality education by choosing private schools, or looking to get in special admission schools. Sometimes they're paying for specialized coaching for their kids and even special videographers who prepare, who capture their kids in athletic prowess so that they have a higher chance of getting in on athletic scholarships. So everyone's trying to make sure their students have great access to a quality education. Rodney, I mean, you heard about this. Is this sort of a well, affirmative action for the brings, rich in a way? It, 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 it resurfaces the argument because they've been arguing this at, um, at the Supreme Court level. The Trump administration has talked about taking race as an equation out of uh, college admissions and that. And so there's, there's some recent debate going on about it. You know, there's an old um, axiom, uh, like an African proverb, all one need know is what type of society you want that automatically determines your educational system. So when you have an enrollment uh, system where the top 1% in this country have their children in the 100 top private elite considered Ivy League universities, they have more of their children enrolled in the top 1% than the bottom 50% of this society. Uh, That shows a pattern and that shows that you're you're building an intellectual academic hierarchy that will marginalize uh, larger and larger numbers of people 
that don't get those opportunities. Kimberly, you go out. What has been the reaction from families when they heard this? I don't think uh, anybody in our circle at Philadelphia Futures was particularly surprised. There's a heightened sense of uh, stress and anxiety around the college admission process for many, many families. So I don't think that people were surprised. Uh, But what we do at Philadelphia Futures, we just provide access to uh, first generation of college students in Philadelphia. And then through our Outreach Futures work, we can go out and talk to families in the broader community. And I think we're continuing to just uh, keep our message of students, especially those who are the first in their family to go to college, need to really arm themselves with a lot of knowledge. And very early on, starting at least in ninth grade, maybe sooner, um, with information about the college application process and how it works. How do you research colleges? Mm -hmm. You should be visiting colleges. How do you advocate for yourself in the process by emailing admissions officers? How do families advocate in the financial aid process? Sounds like these families had the inside track, and that's something that most families uh, do not do not have. And so, Esther, you went through this process. Now you're a junior in college. Uh, you know, what's the, what's the buzz on campus? No one was fully surprised that this happened. Um, however, it did create an interesting climate change. A lot of the first generation students on campus felt like for their coming, it would just be so much harder for them to get on campus. And the thought was how to how do we create more access? How do we get them the information that they need so that this doesn't happen to them or that they feel that they won't have the ability to achieve um, entering a college campus? Who's the real victim here, Farah? I think it's any student who feels like they didn't get into a college of their choice as a result of it. But in the end, I mean, we've had an expansion in the number of institutions that students yeah. can attend. And so there are a lot of collegial options. I think what this really speaks to is the fact that college for many is much more than just getting your degree. What college offers students, and one of the reasons that we're so deeply in the work, and even though there's a mantra in Philadelphia, which is part of what I was trying to bring out in my op-ed, is that there's a mantra in Philadelphia that not every student needs to go to college, that Mm -hmm. work can be a very positive way, that um, college isn't necessarily an optimal choice. But the reality is that for many students in Philadelphia, the ones we work with who are in the academic middle attending the lowest graduation rate high schools. We're in 16 schools in Philadelphia. They're attending schools where the average graduation rate from high school is 67 percent, where the average college completion rate is 40 percent or less, that they need this leg up that college gives them. It used to be a time, people always cite that 1950s seemed like people uh, school was much better. But the reality is that the graduation rate at that time was in the 50s, but you could get a living wage job. You can't now. If yeah, you want a yeah. career-focused job, even if it's a technical job, if you want to be the next CEO in that company, you need to have that college degree. Rodney, does this make it seem like the system is rigged in a way? Well, it is rigged. I, I, I actually believe that there's an unrevealed larger network here than the 33 parents that have been cited in this recent episode. And they've always been privileged people who gifted universities with large sums of monies and endowments, and their children have always gotten in because of the name and because of the connection of their their parents to these universities and that. And that's Uh, not illegal. That's not illegal, though. Yeah, yeah, we're not talking about things that are illegal. These, These have been moral arguments. Slavery was legal, but it was immoral. These segregated patterns of living, you know, historically, the NAACP has had to fight. It took 20 years to bring about the the 1954 court decision. Right now, you're going to see crippling effects, and you're going to see them arguing that many of these blacks and brown children are not equipped to get into some of these Ivy League universities because they're they're not having uh, the kind of help 
But I mean, uh, even with all the help, I mean, with, these, with, are, these with are kids with, that, uh, with the help. They had people taking their tests for them. They weren't taking these tests themselves to even qualify to get in. Even yeah. if this is in the, this to, isn't a case. These yeah. are kids who had all the, the privileges. Right. The, and so I, I want to go. The real victim yeah. is society itself. When you're not allowing the average American, despite color, ethnicity, or whatever, to have a real shot at yeah. doing their best in this society, you're crippling your own civilization here. And I, I know a lot gets done behind closed doors. How is the sausage made? What are, what are they doing in there? Well, you know, one of the things that we do, we have uh, partnerships with colleges. So right now we have 12 college partners. And part of that partnership is that those folks can come in and give us more insight. And then we can give the students more insight. I don't think that many colleges will reveal fully how their decisions are made, just because I think there are a lot of complexities, right, about how they build a class, you know, uh, their institutional priorities, their financial aid budgets that they may not reveal to the general public. Where I think students and families can be empowered is this is really where uh, students have to do a lot of research to understand what are the, the things that they're even requiring? Why are they asking you for a transcript? What does that mean? So when we tell students that and we break down that conversation and begin to unpack, this is why they're asking you for these things. This is why it's important. We are kind of uh, pulling back the curtain a little bit where we can. And then, of course, and again, going back to the resources, yeah, you know, giving fully comprehensive resources like a step up to college guide that breaks out. This is why uh, there are standardized tests. Here are the differences between the SAT and the ACT. Mm. And when they're offered, those are just important uh, steps that in Philadelphia, our students may not have access to mm -hmm. um, in a very large and often under-resourced mm -hmm. district. Um but those small pieces, you know, where uh, students and families can get that information um, can be empowering. When you heard about this, Esther, I mean, would you feel like you were helped or hurt to have things rigged for you and you may or may not have even known? Ultimately, it was to the students' disadvantage to have this happen because it just creates just like a longer path of mistrust within the process and the college admissions process is something that's so stressful and it's like you want to do your best like obviously as a parent you would want your child to achieve all its goals to go to the best college or university that um, your child would want to but at the same time to do this not only hurts your child but it hurts every other child in the United States in the sense that it's like you understand that you're offering something that not everyone has access to, and it just creates a larger divide. Mm -hmm. And I think something that Futures does that is really great is that they try to bridge the gap, mm -hmm. um, and especially in Philadelphia. So I went to a magnet high school, but I also understood that I had friends who went to neighborhood high schools that didn't have the same opportunities that right. I did by going to a magnet high school. Um, but a program like Futures, they don't try. They try to bridge that gap in the sense That's that right. they offer SAT prep. Um, I had advisors who were helping me with my college essays like I had people who were helping me with interview prep and those are things that it's, I wouldn't have received had I not been part of this program and I know there are students that were struggling because they didn't have this um so to do that for the parents to do that in a sense I would understand what their rationale was but it doesn't help um it doesn't make the college admissions process easier mm -hmm. for anyone else, for anyone else in the yep. United States. So I don't think it was really to their advantage. You mentioned, Farah, I mean, parents want to do everything that they possibly can to get their kids the best uh, chances of getting in. When does it become unfair? Absolutely. It is unfair. I mean, that's when we just had a junior retreat. We had 300 of our juniors mm -hmm. come and get 
basically a boot camp into the college admission process. And part of it that we do is we do a GPA game where they each un- begin to understand and unpack what are the what are the different ways college um, admissions work. So you're a legacy student, you're very wealthy, you have a great GPA, you have the ability to pull free mm. freight, you're an international student. There's so many considerations. And so it's already unfair. And the main message we we wanted to get to them was it is unfair. You're not five years old. You know life is unfair. But it is for you to make a decision to access and grab every resource yeah. available to yeah. you. Sign up for every opportunity. Go grab the bull by the horns because you have college material. You are college material. If you hear your college material, you're going to set yourself yeah. up to, yeah. to reach that. So ho- can colleges be trusted? Because you just heard it. It's all these factors. Can well, they be trusted? I have to say no. When you go back historically to many of these universities, they played a big role in legitimizing uh, the slave system. They were attended primarily by children from slave owners. They have no gain in yeah. changing the system that benefited them. To correct a lot of historical wrongs, it was felt that affirmative action could help bring about uh, diversity was supposed to be the true outcome of yeah. this as they fought against affirmative action in that, even with the outcome of more and more white children at these elite universities, when you when you measure America up to other industrialized nations, they're still falling behind. Yeah, It is yeah. costing this country. And those are the kind of things that the NAACP and Dr. King and them were fighting against from a moral plane, not yeah. just uh, yeah. academically. And so, you know, you, you hear this. Is there going to be confidence? Can we get the confidence back in the system? So one of the things, I think, at least in the last five years, that has mm-hmm. been a trend. And, of course, you know, like a lot of trends, they're too late, right? And they come as a result. You know, they're not proactive. They come as a result of yeah. a lot of people wringing their hands is that I do think a lot of the highly selective colleges are beginning to put an emphasis on first-generation-to-college students. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, I think, and especially after this scandal, will be more of a conversation um, where colleges understand they have a due diligence to serve a diverse population of students. Um, You know, some of the things that Farah mentioned – um, that they that that is now, um, you know, university presidents and board of trustees are going to be asking colleges, where's your commitment? Whether it is financial, you know, and how you just uh, disperse your aid. Yes. It's inclusion, how you review applicants um, that come from populations that aren't necessarily wealthy or coming from select high schools across the United States. Um, and it's about access. And, you know, the work that a lot of the organizations in Philadelphia do is creating that access point for students um, and bridging that gap and connecting with um, admissions counselors and university presidents to start and have those conversations. So this is this could actually give you you all fuel to say, look, we see what, what goes on behind closed doors. Prove that you're not one of these. It's one of the reasons why we created partnerships. Yeah. Um, yeah. That our students uh, need to have those, uh, you know, those access points in the admissions process. And then financially, um, they need to have financial aid packages that are sustainable for them to attend institutions like uh, Lafayette or Dickinson or Villanova. Yeah. Yeah. Put the money where the mouth is. Esther, do you ever feel like you have to work harder? I did feel a sense that I had to work harder just because I knew coming from my background, I would I didn't have the same access to even things in high school. For example, just an anecdote, I took general chemistry my freshman year and I realized how many students already had lab experience, whereas in my high school, that wasn't something that was provided because we didn't have the funding mm-hmm. for it. So that did take a lot more of me um, doing my own 
research and like how do I better myself as a student because yes I made it into the school but the goal is ultimately to graduate um there's a sense I think for a lot of first generation students that's like you're kind of like holding your whole community on your back and to an extent like I understand that pressure but I feel like I was also very well equipped Philadelphia Futures they kind of told me the truth (laughs) they didn't really hide anything um they told me you you might be the only person of color in your class sometimes and that's a fact and that's been a reality especially for me at Lafayette but I think I've taken that in a sense of pride and just showing that it's like I can make it and I will be a success story so it's like yes I do work harder yeah but I know what I'm proving um I don't want to just be another statistic when is preferential treatment justified I mean, I guess when when there are students who are showing exemplary talent in a particular area and the universities also use preferential Mm -hmm. treatment at some level to create the diversity in their class. So I remember as an undergraduate hearing from college admissions that if you were a kid from Nebraska and you were applying to an East Coast school, your advantage, you're more likely to get in. So it's so there's a lot that goes into the mix. I think the main thing it would I would encourage people to take away from the scandal is that um, don't count on the institution to uh, to level the playing field. Count on yourself to do that. Do what you can to yeah. prepare your student, no matter where you are in the economic strata. Do you think the courts, we have a very conservative court coming up, you know, we're, and do you think they're going to ignore this as um, like it didn't happen? No, that we're wealth? fighting at the national level. We've been fighting, and, and I, I, I just really want to commend you because I, I was— you really hit a heartstring when you just said you you realize you didn't have something, but you didn't give up. And I really want to tell you I appreciate that in you. You didn't use what you didn't have as a reason to discontinue, and then you stayed in the fight. And and yes, we do have to do twice as good in in too many cases because of where we start. And I just want to say that society ends up colored by this because this is a way of engineering certain students in and, 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 and disallowing others and, and even having the crippling conditions yeah. before someone can get there to say, oh, poor thing, you just didn't qualify. This is why you had a Chief Justice, Scalia, who, who recently passed, saying that he always felt that blacks should be in lower track educational experience. They just don't have what it takes to keep pace with these Ivy League universities and that. Now we're finding out that there are some whites who not only can't prove that they can keep pace with it. They can't even get in I think without that, certain under-the-table deals in that. I think we just have to also be careful of the fact that when we create preference, we're also taking away opportunity from somebody else. And the cases yeah. that are before us now yeah. have less to do with access for low-income students, but for universities' ability to provide the to create the kind of diversity in their academic class that they'd like. So the Harvard case is really important to, to make note of because yeah. that is a case not about uh, uh, low-income black it's not, students. Yeah. It's about Asian, Asian students, students Asian being students, denied right. access because they tend to fare better through the process. They work really hard and disproportionately they're shut out of schools because yeah. even though they're high academic flyers, the schools are trying to create a diversity. So, so, they can't so let let's just the, be yeah. careful that this is about what we want to allow our universities to do to create the pool that they want in terms of diversity of thought, diversity yeah. of experience. But I got to, you know, make this, and I want Kimberly to talk about this because college isn't a charity. It costs a lot of money to run institutions. Mm-hmm. And so some say, you know, they need these kids 
whose parents can write the big checks. They are a critical part of any university. What's your response to that? That goes back to the complexity and why colleges are often hesitant to really uh, Mm -hmm. give the ins and outs. A lot of institutions are tuition-driven, so um, they generate their revenue from tuition dollars. Whether it's a business. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, to have... um, brand new labs and uh, faculty and, um, you know, to make sure that they are keeping up with all the things that they need to to attract more students, they do have to generate revenue. So that is a part of the process of the business of college admissions um, that I think is, you know, part of this. And I think that part of why this scandal um, is so attractive is not, you know, necessarily also because it's wealthy folks. There's celebrity involved. And I think it just brings together a lot of issues in a in a process and a topic that creates a lot of anxiety for folks. Yeah. That's why you can have diversity in, in the basketball team and the football team. You can be all black as long as it's winning and generating yeah. billions of dollars yeah. for these universities. Now that you're in there, you three years in, you got one more year to go. What is wow. your dream for yourself? Right. So I currently study psychology and French, um, and I'm focusing on behavioral neuroscience. Um, so my dream would be not only to graduate Lafayette, but to in turn complete a PhD program in behavioral neuroscience so that I can have my own practice. Um, my goal is really to change the stigma against mental health um, within not only the African-American community, but also the Caribbean community. So I'm originally from Haiti and I understand like the um, complexity of mental health. So that's really something that I want to do, just like make an impact on the community and just really to like not only change the stigma, but to like be a stepping stone and a role model um, others that come after me wonderful and because this is flashpoint we do have to wrap this up where do we go from here y'all how do we restore the trust in the system and make it a fairer uh playing field one of the ways to do that is to uh, make sure people have as much information as possible the work that we do at the philadelphia education fund the reason that we embedded in our schools is in, in our public schools the reason we work in neighborhood high schools and low grad high schools is because those are the students who are going to least have access to information mm-hmm. about what the college going process looks like and even though not every student is going to make the choice to go to college they need to know what the steps are that are required because many of them may decide later yeah. This is a choice yeah. that they want to make. And give us the website. So the website we recommend people to go to is phillygoestocollege.org. You can't do it by just ignoring historical wrongs. So getting rid of affirmative action is not the answer. However, I, I would admit that we should constantly review it, uh, yeah. refine it uh, as we move forward. And I, I just say this as my last statement. A connection may get you there. Uh, but you got to ask the real question. Do you have the stuff to stay there? Affirmative action can bring yeah, you to the party, yeah, but yeah. it doesn't graduate you. And um, we'll go to you, Esther. Yeah, how do you, what do you feel will make it a fairer playing field? When thinking of just diversity and inclusion, we also need to think about equity and what that really mm-hmm. means. There's more to diversity than just finances, mm-hmm. um, whether it's race, whether it's thought. But it's also just thinking about like equity and understanding like where your students are coming from and how they start and how to like really support them. Wonderful final word. The message for students should be not to discount themselves and not to feel like the, uh, college is not attainable based on this particular um, situation that's at hand. Um, for parents, feel empowered, especially parents who that child will be the first to go off to college, connect mm-hmm. to an organization, find resources. And then for colleges, think deeply about 
what real access work means. And then, you know, at Philadelphia Features, we have our Step Up to College guide. We also have a summer supplement that is geared toward rising high school seniors. To get them through their process, we have an app. So all the ways that students would want to get information, yep. we offer those and resources. Give a website. Um, step up to college and philadelphiafutures.org. Shafara Jimenez, Rodney Muhammad, Esther Flavian, and finally, thank you to Kimberly Lewis for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, she's the first woman to lead Philly's prisons. You have to seize every opportunity. Her approach to corrections and why it's disrupted the status quo. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is mass incarceration. And over the past three years, Philadelphia has decreased its prison population more than 40 percent. And last May, the city closed the House of Correction, a nearly century-old prison so notorious it was known as the Dungeon. Now, while the effort has been accomplished by a work by the DA Courts Defenders, the prisons have been a major component. And in 2016, Blanche Carney became the first woman ever to be named commissioner of the Philadelphia Department of Prisons. And we are on state road in her office to talk about her barrier breaking work. Commissioner, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. It's been nearly three years. Can you believe it? No, I can't. Time goes by fast. So I want to go back and talk about, you know, when you found out that you would become the first woman commissioner of the Philadelphia Department of Prisons, what went through your mind? I was truly humbled. And I was honored uh, to accept the position. And given the uh, history that the prisons has always been led by uh, male commissioners, Mm -hmm. and I believe that as a female, I brought such a unique perspective. And that perspective was coupled with my experience in corrections, but also my social work background. And in that lens, it really gave me an opportunity to operate the prisons holistically, Mm -hmm. not in a punitive sense, but in a restorative sense, coupled with programs and services for the inmates here at the PDP. Yeah, and I've had a chance to come here and see some of the programs at work. You know, when the Pope came, we mentioned that. Yes, we did. There were men and women working on Furniture. They were building things for the Pope. And I think one of the uh, unique pieces about the papal visit was that the inmates had an opportunity to showcase the vocational training that we offer Mm -hmm. here behind the walls. So it's not that people are just here in cells or hanging out, but they're actively involved in programs and services. And that was indicative of that chair that we presented to the Pope during his visit. But with change comes controversy because there was a lawsuit filed. Like, soon as you got appointed, it was like, oh, no, people were mad. Men, specifically, a man was mad, filed, said he was passed over. How did that impact, you know, you coming in trying to lead, uh, you know, in in a very historic way? Or did it? I think the the responsibility that I had Mm -hmm. was to demonstrate my leadership skills. And Mm -hmm. my leadership skills is that I have to operate the Philadelphia Department of Prisons effectively, efficiently, and with fidelity. And in doing that, uh, really not being uh, given attention to that, but I still had to move the work along. I still have inmates in custody that need programs and services, staff Mm -hmm. that need training and supports. I have the community partners and criminal justice stakeholders that are engaged in our 
our operations on a daily basis. So the work has to go on, and I just have to stay focused with the vision, and that's to make sure that this is operating effectively, efficiently, in a humane way. I read an article, and they said that your approach to uh, corrections disrupted the status quo. Could you explain what the status quo was and and then your holistic approach was very different? It is a restorative approach. And so when you operate a correctional department and the lens is, okay, people have been accused or committed of a crime. Mm -hmm. So they come into custody and what do you do? There is no wasted time in corrections. You have to seize every opportunity. And so when I started to introduce restorative programs programming, evidence-based programming, behavioral health programming into the department. I don't think it was so much of a, a, an interruption as to looking at and educating staff of why we need to move forward in these in these programs and services. So it just cannot be one-sided where you're giving attention to uh, security measures but you have to couple that with programs and services because we're dealing with human beings and they're multifaceted and so coupled with the expert uh, correctional practices that we have in place you can introduce cognitive behavioral therapy anger management uh, substance use treatment in a meaningful way because we understand that these people that are here now will be returning to our community Mm -hmm. and it's incumbent upon us that we prepare them as best we can prior to release so that when they do return, hopefully they do not recidivate and re-engage with the criminal justice system. And that was that different lens. It really put a spotlight on programs and services and how we couple that with our correctional practices. Back up a little bit. What drew you to corrections in the first place? I started out as a foster care social worker and I had a client that uh, her mother was incarcerated and that was my first engagement with the prisons. And it was during that supervised visit that I took a look and I stepped back and I said, we were doing a lot of programming services for the child and the children in foster care, but what about the parents? And that piqued my interest. And that's how uh, I transitioned from foster care to corrections. And did you have any, like in your mind when you were working in foster care that you would one day be the commissioner? No, I did not. No, I did not. I was happy in the foster care system, but it really shocked me to see if we're going to talk about reunification, family involvement, what services were there for the parents. So this was a transition, a Mm. big transition from foster care to working with adults in prison and working my way through the ranks. Mm-hmm. Here at the department, started out as a social worker and went through and worked my way through a deputy commissioner for restorative and transitional services and then ultimately being appointed commissioner of the department. What are you most proud of? If you if you were to say, OK, these are the three things this had a huge impact us working with our criminal justice stakeholders it's no longer a siloed approach we were able to work together on the MacArthur grant Mm -hmm. and that is the reason why the population today is decreased by 44 percent which is uh, significant and also I'm mostly proud of addressing pertinent issues for uh, the inmates in custody number one we implemented the medication assisted treatment Mm-hmm. In February of 2018, as folks were coming and being admitted into the department, uh, our medical staff were assessing uh, quite a few folks that were addicted to opioids. Yeah, uh, We had not had previously a medication-assisted treatment, and that was a need, and it was a need that we had to meet. So 
we implemented in February of 2018. And to date, we've engaged over uh, 1,300 inmates on MAT. And given the fact that, you know, the epidemic that is in Philadelphia, but those folks find themselves coming into custody, we have to treat them. And there's there wasn't an option just to allow people to withdraw with really no concrete MAT program. So I'm very proud of that. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that 25% of the population that were engaged for MAT are women, I knew I had to address that because these are mothers. Yes. They have children in the community. And if we can help people recover prior to release and have a continuum of care for treatment post-release, that also has a better outcome for their children and their families. So you're really thinking beyond incarceration. Now, I know with budgets, you know, there was a lot of pressure and there is a lot of pressure on you to cut costs. And people thought, you know what, now that the prison's closed, now that there's less people, this should be cheaper. Have there been any savings? There's been minimal savings, Mm -hmm. uh, given the fact that with the closure of House of Corrections, that allowed me to redeploy staff that were assigned at the House of Corrections to the five other major facilities. So we have a huge campus imprint here in the city. Mm -hmm. So with the redeployment of staff, it also afforded me the opportunity to also implement out-of-cell time program for inmates in administrative or uh, punitive segregation that have uh, committed violations inside the prisons. But it gives people in that status and opportunity to work their way out back into general population. So cognitive behavioral therapy is another major initiative, uh, being the commissioner, understanding that there is criminal thinking. Mm-hmm. And how do we address that? And so you you don't leave people to themselves. You engage them in an evidence-based way, offering uh, cognitive behavioral therapy that addresses anger management, impulse control, goal setting, so that they can work their way out. So what you did was shift the focus of the funding. To reinvest into programs and services. Mm-hmm. So even having a 44% reduction, you still have to provide robust programs and services. And that comes at a cost. So the cost savings was reinvested mm-hmm. into those particular initiatives. Now, was there any challenges? Because I know with, you know, decreasing prison population, I mean, it doesn't, it sounds easy. Well, what were the major challenges here? Well, I think the major challenges is really educating folks that even though the population has decreased, we still need to reinvest in programs and services to help people transition back to the community. If you are not doing restorative practices and programs and services, it's for naught. We have to reinvest, and you have to reinvest in needs of the populations. What is it that you're seeing? What are the services that need to be put in place? And they were the out-of-cell time, medication-assisted treatment, but also you're investing in your staff. And so in September of 2018, we uh, had the opportunity to receive training from the National Institute of Corrections for crisis intervention training. Mm -hmm. And that training helps our uniform staff, our multidisciplinary staff, really recognize distress in inmates Mm -hmm. and how to engage, how to help them de-escalate in a meaningful way. So it's twofold. It's training for staff and then restorative programs for the population. So when you talk about cost savings, you're looking to reinvest. So we have such a great momentum with the reduction in population, but what brought us to this point? Yeah, It's w- been programs and services, and you have to reinvest. Why were people 
coming to prison in the first place? It's a myriad of reasons. Um, I think one of the major indicators with the work of the MacArthur is that we looked at the overall criminal justice processing mm-hmm. across all stakeholders. And we were able to identify uh, areas that we could do better as a city to assess the right people being in custody for the correct uh, charges and offenses. And so that was a major shift, but that was all done through the major stakeholders coming together. But that's also a delicate balance because we have victims in the community. What we deliver here, I'm always thinking, how can we play a part in reducing re-victimization or new victims? Mm -hmm. And that's the support of programs and services. When uh, the, the lens was really put on mass incarceration, all of the criminal justice stakeholders came together and said, we're going to address this collectively. We're no longer going to operate in silos and we're going to share data and we're going to come out with meaningful initiatives that will help assess who needs to be in custody and who can be safely diverted and not have impose a risk to public safety. And that public safety is a big issue because people feel like this, there's an uptick in shootings and all this kind of stuff. They're seeing like the decreased population and they're nervous. But part of what you're trying to do, it seems to me, is to make sure that people actually go through some kind of restorative justice process. And understanding that we deal with people that have free will. Yeah. But the the key here is giving people access to programs and services that maybe they have never, never. been engaged yeah. with before or it was limited. But once you're exposing people to a different way to think through things, to de-escalate impulse control, this is just the start. And they have to finish the work. But the exposure of those types of programs and services and also the administration is committed uh, to looking at what's happening in the community with the the recent uh, release of the violence prevention strategy. That's major. Mm -hmm. So it's all of us coming together to to address this issue, all hands on deck. So while I have a stake in it, you have other uh, criminal justice partners doing their part to say we're going to keep pulling and and plucking away at this until we really start to make those meaningful impacts. There's a lot of women working in the prisons these days. Yes. I'm I'm proud to say that because uh, the uh, female correctional officers, they bring a unique skill set as well. Really, it demonstrates that women can do jobs that were historically male dominated if given the opportunity. They have the the same skill set, if not better, to come into such an environment and interact in a meaningful way, to de-escalate in a meaningful way. But overall, the correctional staff have been phenomenal in really taking a look at, okay, how will this benefit me? So it's twofold. It has to be not just for the inmates, but if it starts to decrease incidents, then that makes the correctional officer's job easier as well. Mm -hmm. What's on the horizon for you? With the reduction in the population, understanding that the lower custody level or lower risk folks have transitioned out and been released back into the community, the next heavy lift will be to look at restructuring program opportunities for the medium to high custody folks. That historically, the programming and reentry services has always been relegated to serving the lower level folks. Mm -hmm. Now you have medium to high risk, and we need to be thoughtful in in bringing on new programs that will address their needs and help them transition back to the community because those are the folks with the most serious charges Mm -hmm. or convictions in in custody at this time. What was the major challenge being a woman in this role? Because being the first anything, you take a lot of daggers. You have to stand in your own truth. You have to be confident, and you know what you know. 
mm-hmm. and you still have to lead. And it's not always about talk. It's through uh, leading. It's through action. It's through building a team. And so realizing that it's not just me as the commissioner, but it's really building my team, fostering relationships interdisciplinary because it's so easy to just say, you know, I'm going to do what it is I do and not understand how that has an impact on the other disciplines. I am an advocate of building my team from within empowering them with their skill sets to go off and run their operation effectively. And that's been one of my successes. That's one of my strengths is building the team. So how do you take care of yourself? Self-care is huge (laughs) in in corrections. Yes. Uh, You have to find time to meditate, uh, I do med- say <laughs> you know I, I'm a Christian mm-hmm. I meditate I pray um, but also you have to really have time with family and friends and your support system mm-hmm. and in these positions you give it hundred and ten percent every day at least I know I do hundred and ten percent every day but I do have a strong support system and your your self-care has to also be on your agenda because if you're not well the department won't be well and that's one of the keys I think we we sometimes overlook that and you're going full speed ahead but you have to be able to step back and take that time for the self-care and my last question for you is I just interviewed a young woman who is about to graduate um, from Lincoln University and uh, she wants to go into corrections your advice to young women who may end up like you don't be afraid to walk through the door when given an opportunity walk through the door. Oftentimes, we as women, we talk ourselves out of opportunities. Don't do that. You have what it takes to walk into these doors to do this type of work, whether it be in corrections or another field. Give yourself time to grow, but also don't cut yourself off from opportunities for fear. And I believe sometimes that self-talk will say, I don't know if I could do that. Am I the right person? You are the right person. Take the opportunity, seize it, and move forward and watch what happens. Well, we're going to be watching to see what happens. Congratulations to you. Three years, you made it through. Yes, thank you. Thank (laughs) you. And a lot has been accomplished. So thank you so much to Commissioner Blanche Carney for being on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Next up, they're building a vision for women 100 years after gaining the right to vote. We're in kind of the second year of the woman. What's happening now and what's to come for the centennial? We'll be right back. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, and I'm Cherry Gregg. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe to the podcast using any kind of podcast app, including that on the radio.com app. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW and hit subscribe. You know that we here at KYW are all about community, and one local university is putting women first by connecting individuals and organizations from all 50 states. The National Coalition wants to assure that equality for women exists across America. America as we gear up for the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in 2020. Here to tell us all about the Drexel University Initiative is Vision 2020's Executive Director, Allison Nolan, and the Communications Director, Kathleen McFadden. Ladies, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having us. us. So explain for folks who haven't heard about Vision 2020 yet, what is the vision? Vision 2020, as you said, is a women's equality coalition headquartered at the Institute for Women's Health and Leadership at Drexel University. Mm. And we're really about accelerating the pace of women's progress. And we stand for, there are four pillars that we work for on a daily basis. And they involve shared leadership, youth education, civic engagement, 
and economic parity for women. And 2020 is significant. So the first Women's Rights Convention was actually in 1848. Mm -hmm. So leading between that and 1920 was over 70 years of the women's suffragists trying to get the right to vote and a lot of campaigns of anti-suffrage going on at the same time. So 2020 is the 100th anniversary of that 19th Amendment being passed for the U.S. Constitution. And so there's going to be beginning in March of 2020, you ladies and the whole group, all these coalitions are going to be running around and planning things and things are going to be happening. That's right. We say that it's really a year-long series of events and programs. So we'll be kicking off our year on February 29th. It's a leap year next year. We love that date. It's the last day of Black History Month and the eve of Women's History Month. So we really love that idea of bridging the women's story on that date. And we'll be opening our interactive educational exhibition that night at the Kimmel Center from March through September. And so give me the laundry list of things that people can look forward to. And then we'll talk about what's happening very soon. Mm-hmm. So next year, as I said, we'll kick it off with our interactive exhibition, the free exhibition, mm-hmm. open to all. We also are going to be bringing hundreds of college students to the Philadelphia area in the end of March to really talk about what gender equality means to them. Then again at the Kimmel Center, we're going to have our women's leadership forums where we're going to bring in prominent speakers and panelists on April 1st of 2020 at the Kimmel. Every year for the past five years, we've had a Toast to Tenacity where we do a little bit of a history look back at the women's rights movement. And then at the end, we toast with grape juice because back in 1920, it was prohibition. Oh, so, memories. Yeah, we, to- <laughs> we toast with grape juice, the work of the yeah. suffragists and all they did for us. And so when we think about this, I mean, because there's there's a long history of women fighting for their rights. And right now we're at a place where we see a shift. That's right. It's really interesting for us. Vision 2020 was actually founded 10 years ago. Mm. And our founder is Lynn Yackel, who has been involved in politics for, for many years. And she ran in 1992 for Senate. So she's been involved in politics for years. And this movement, that was the first year of the woman, people called it. And now we're looking and people are talking about we're in kind of the second year of the woman and what that what's that going to look like? We now have more women in Congress than ever before. And are we kind of on the eve of potentially having a woman president? So it's really exciting to see how far it's come in Lynn's lifetime and how she's made Vision 2020 and her life's work about that. Yeah, I mean, and Lynn was on a, a Flashpoint show we did on women. And one of the things we talked about is that there, there had to be a lot of different things that had to happen in order to really have gender equality. Even just the increased news coverage around this issue mm-hmm. are looking at it from an intersectional lens. Yes. Um, realizing that, yes, there is the pay gap for between women and men, but that also breaks down within different demographics of women. So Hispanic women are seeing 53 cents on the dollar that every man makes, whereas white women, I think it's 77 cents. So it's important to highlight all of those stories instead of just, you know, one version of it. Yeah. And women are so different. I mean, you have... Mm-hmm religious differences, cultural differences, racial differences, ethnic differences, geographic, socioeconomic. I mean, women are so diverse as this country. We actually are going to be talking about that through our exhibition and through our forums, because even though women were granted the right to vote in 1920 by the federal government, 
many women were still denied access, especially in the South. So they were given tests, and if they failed, they were not permitted to vote. So we're going to try to bring all that to light because not many people know those stories. Yeah, and then you referring to women of color, black women in the South. Jim Crow yeah. is happening. Mm-hmm. So on March 26th, you all have something happening. And you will be there for it. Yes, I will. <laughs> so we're actually partnering with a bunch of different groups within the city. And we all came together because we're all wanting to talk about what's happening next yeah. year and really elevate the significance of this really important 100th anniversary milestone. So the focus of the event is going to be, it's at the Free Library. We're doing two panels. One is focused on the past, and we're bringing in historians and authors to really talk about what it was like during the suffrage movement, some of the divides that were happening among the suffragists. And then the next panel, we're going to bring in Melinda Johnson from our team at Vision 2020 will be there to talk a lot about what's going on next year in 2020 Mm. here in Philly and how people can really get involved and sort of those priority areas of how can we really advance women's equality quickly. I feel like once it hits a critical point, then it goes lightning speed. Yeah, and I think that's something that you and Lynn talked about last year too was this yeah. Me Too movement. And mm-hmm. and I think that really kind of awakened a lot of societies saying, oh my gosh, there are these inequalities that and these microaggressions that women are having to deal with at work and at home and in different social situations. So it's important to really talk about what has contributed to that and what has sort of built up to this Year of the Woman 2.0 It is moving in the right direction, but there's still a lot to make up for. And so uh, anything else you want to add that maybe I didn't ask you about? I will say that we are partnering with a bunch of different organizations around Philadelphia called the Women 100 Proud Partner Network. So if you work somewhere, if you know of a group that's planning on doing some programming around women or to highlight women in their field, we would love to work with them. So we invite as many organizations in the Philadelphia area and beyond that across the nation to sign up as proud partners so that we're spreading that message of women's equality even further next year. Wonderful. So lots to look forward to now and in 2020 as we gear up to celebrate. So Vision 2020, uh, go to edu slash Vision 2020. All right, for more information. So I want to say thank you to Allison Nolan and thank you to Kathleen McFadden for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you for having us. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Please follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. And if there's an issue in the community that makes you hot under the collar, please let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor once said, until we get equality in education, we won't have an equal society. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.